You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name's Ross. Uh, thanks for introducing me, Afriye. Um, I am part of the North site, usually. I'm one of the Transform pastors, and I'm really excited to be with you this morning. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It's a real privilege. Um, we are going to be continuing in our series in the, uh, at Christ, His Church, and His Cause. Um, we've been kind of burrowing into the Book of Acts for several weeks now, trying to soak up every morsel of goodness that it's got for us. And uh, it's been a really dense book so far, hasn't it? It's like full of meaty goodness. No offence to any of the veggies or vegans out there. One thing that we hear more and more about in the news as the world grapples with climate change uh, is wildfires. They seem to be happening more frequently and on a greater scale than ever before. And they are often reported in the context of being a hugely destructive force. But I was reading about wildfires uh, a short time ago, and I was really surprised to learn that they are not always bad. In fact, they can sometimes be beneficial for the environment because they do things like clear away old dead wood and growth um, and debris from the ground, opening the soil up to the sunlight, which nourishes it and makes way for regeneration and new life and new growth. And in fact, there are some species of trees and plants that actually rely on wildfire for their survival. So there are some species of trees who have fireproof bark and cones that require intense heat in order to open and release their seeds. And there are some plants whose seeds require intense heat um, for their germination. And so wildfire can work to cleanse the environment of old deadwood and debris, uh, making way for new life and regeneration and new growth. And in the passage that we're going to read this morning, what we're seeing is the moment that God takes this little fire that's been burning really intensely and really brightly uh, in uh, a tiny region of the Middle East and fans it into a flame, uh, a wildfire that would spread to the ends of the earth and reach every tribe and every tongue and every nation with Jesus' offer of renewal and new life. So let's just remind ourselves of where we're at in the story. Um, Acts has been this incredible journey of the growth of a movement of Jesus followers. Um, More and more people are uh, hearing the news that Jesus is the Messiah. More and more people are receiving his gift of salvation. And more and more people are giving their lives to follow him. And now Barnabas has been sent out to this community of faith that's emerging in Antioch amongst uh, non-Jewish people or Gentiles. And the gospel's been preached to the Gentiles there. And they are coming to faith in their droves. It says of the people preaching in Antioch in Acts 11, the power of the Lord was with them and many Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. And so Barnabas, seeing that he's going to have a job on his hands, enlists the help of Saul, persecutor of Christians turned Jesus follower himself, and he invests in him. He invests in his future ministry and in his leadership. And they run the church together in Antioch for a whole year until they hear about the suffering of some Christians back in Judea who are experiencing a famine. And so they lead the church to give a special offering together, which they then take to Jerusalem to give to those Christians for the relief of their suffering. And we're going to join the story just as Barnabas and Saul return to the church plant in Antioch from, well, the mother church, I guess, in Jerusalem. So we're reading from Acts chapter 12, verse 25, to chapter 13, verse 5, if you want to follow along. 
When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salami, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Amen. When I was dating my wife, Laura, I was always coming up with grand ideas to romance her and sweep her off her feet. And those ideas were good in principle, but they often ended in disaster. For example, one time I thought it'd be a great idea to take Laura to the beach for a barbecue. Not just to cook sausages and burgers, no, 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 because I knew that one way to win Laura's heart round to the idea of marrying me was to show her how wonderful a chef I was. And so with no culinary experience whatsoever, I found a delicious looking salmon recipe in my Delia Smith cookbook that I was going to cook on my five pound disposable barbecue from Tesco's. And to begin with, things were going really well. The weather was great, the sun was in the sky, Laura's even laughing at some of my jokes, which is almost unheard of these days. And uh, we've got a little bit of white wine in our plastic picnic glasses. Things are going swimmingly and suddenly, Disaster strikes, and the grass next to the barbecue goes up in a dramatic blaze. And I panic, because in my head, I'm imagining the whole of the nature reserve, from Donmouth to Balmedy, going up in smoke. Like, I can hear the fire engines in the distance, and I can see the news headlines in the papers the next day in my mind's eye. They would have said something like, Yob sets fire to local nature reserve and beauty spot in booze-fueled barbecue bedlam. And so... I start to heap sand on the fire, hoping that it will put it out, completely ruining my delicious salmon dish. Uh, We never got to experience that, sadly. And the fire doesn't go out. And just as my dream of marrying Laura is about to go up in smoke with the fire, it dies down all of its own accord and goes out as quickly as it started. The conditions required for that fire to spread on that day were not all present. And to my great relief, it just burnt fast and dramatically and then went out. In the passage we read this morning, what we're witnessing is this moment that the gospel starts to spread out and set fire to the wider world. Up until now, it's been contained in this relatively small region of the Middle East between Antioch and Jerusalem. But now Saul and Barnabas are being sent out on this first missionary journey to take Jesus' offer of salvation to the nations. And as we continue in our series in the book of Acts, we're going to see how this fire doesn't go out like the one started by my barbecue mishap, but instead spreads like wildfire fire all over the world, reaching billions upon billions of people and somehow burning for the next 2,000 years. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what were the conditions that were present on that day that caused the wildfire to spread? Or what can we learn as a church from this sending out moment that led to so many people hearing the news about Jesus and giving their lives to follow him? And one of the first things I noticed from the passage is this group of five guys that are mentioned right at the start by name. In chapter 13, verse 1, it said, Now in the church in Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
And when I first read it, my immediate question was, well, who are these guys? I know a little bit about Barnabas. I know a little bit about Saul. All I know about the other three really is what's written in the passage, that they were teachers and prophets in the church in Antioch. But it turns out we can infer that they were pretty far from a homogenous group. Homogenous, I love that word. All it means is that they were uh, not alike one another. What we know about Barnabas was that he was an encourager. We know that he was a generous and faithful man. We know that he believed in the power of the Holy Spirit to completely transform someone's life, regardless of their past. We know that he was respected and trusted amongst his peers. And culturally, we know that he was a Greek-speaking Jewish convert to Christianity. Saul was a Jew. Um, He trained as a Pharisee. He would have been a well-educated guy. He uh, was a religious man and he persecuted Christians before uh, his encounter with Jesus. And we know that he went on to become a missionary and a preacher and that he wrote large swathes of the New Testament. Then we come to Simeon called Niger. So all we really know about him is that his name means black. Some people think that might mean he was a man of African descent. We don't know for sure. Lucius of Cyrene, again, all we really know about him is from his name. Um, Of Cyrene implies he was from uh, Libya in North Africa. And then Manaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So children of Roman kings would often have a child from the local community to live with them as a kind of playmate and study companion. And those children would have had access to some of the privileges of royalty. And so some people think that Manaean was probably Roman, that he was probably uh, well-educated and well-connected, and he was probably reasonably well-off financially. The point is that these five guys couldn't really have been more different, and yet they seem to be united together under one cause, under Jesus and his church. They are as culturally diverse a leadership as the church has ever known up until now. And coupled with that, The church in Antioch is as culturally diverse a church as the world has ever known up until this point. Antioch was a commercial hub. It was one of the largest cities in the region and it attracted people from a broad range of geographies and ethnicities and religions and cultures. It was a cultural melting pot and the church represented the community and the diversity of that community. And it got me thinking... Why did God set up a church like that and use a church like that as the staging post for the biggest campaign yet to take Jesus to the four corners of the world? And I wonder if it wasn't something to do with this, that as the church reflected the diversity of the community that it served, it also reflected God's heart that everyone be included. It was an open invitation. Antioch was going to become known as the launchpad for global Christianity, and the church there was founded on principles of diversity and inclusion. That's one of the reasons that we work really hard as a church to try and make sure that we are representing the diversity of the communities that we serve. You know, we're taking steps towards that. But the truth is, we've probably only just scratched the surface. And we're recognising that it's going to take time to build true representation and diversity across our leadership and our ministries and our congregations. But we're committed to working at it because we believe it's a good and godly principle. We believe it enriches us as a people and as a church. And we believe it enriches our communities. And we'll keep on pursuing it because the alternative to pursuing inclusion and diversity is not an option for us. When the things that divide us become greater than the thing that unites us, the consequences are never good. 
At best, we miss out on the opportunity to learn from each other's experiences and perspectives and cultures. And at worst, fear and resentment and mistrust can start to fester and grow and take hold. And all too often, the consequences are suffering and pain. And sometimes, suffering and pain and damage on a large scale that can take generations to heal. We can think of things like the slave trade or the various ethnic cleansing moments that have happened across history or all the wars that humankind has had to endure, including the tragedy that's unfolding in Ukraine. These things don't just impact our todays, but they reverberate across time and they impact our tomorrows and the tomorrows of our children. That's why the church has to be a place that makes a stand against the exclusion and the dismissal of the minority by the majority. We have to be a place where the minority is welcomed and given a voice. And we need to learn to celebrate and embrace our differences and to learn from them because they enrich our lives and our churches and our communities. And I wonder if the church shouldn't be aiming to lead the way in that, setting the standard on how to hear and love and include one another. You know, Catalyst serves a really diverse community, even within Aberdeen City itself. One in ten people in Aberdeen is from a non-white ethnic minority background. And Aberdeen has the highest proportion of foreign residents in all of Scotland. One in four of us is born outside of the UK. That's something like 55,000 of the 228,000 people that live in Aberdeen City. And we are lucky enough to have some of that diversity represented within our church. We are far from the least diverse church that ever existed. But I think there's way more to be had. And I don't think it's something that will just land in our laps. I think it's something we'll need to pursue and be intentional about if we want to have it. We'll need to look again at our beliefs and our actions and our behaviours and we'll need to make changes. Maybe it'll cost us something. For me, I know I need to become more conscious of my subconscious bias. I need to become more aware of the prejudice that exists within me. And without beating myself up about it, I think my prayer would be something like the one at the end of Psalm 139. It just says, search me, Lord, know my heart and show me any offensive way in me. Diversity, as demonstrated by the church in Antioch, threw the doors of the church wide open to the rest of the world. Suddenly, everyone was invited to the party. And a way was made for the gospel to reach billions upon billions of people from every walk of life. And similarly, as we embrace and celebrate and learn from our differences more and more and become more and more diverse as a community of faith, then I believe that the doors of our church are going to look more inviting and welcoming and appealing to more and more people and that we will be the richer for it. The second thing I notice from the passage is that these are guys who are reliant on the Holy Spirit for their direction and their dynamis. Don't worry, I didn't know what dynamis meant either. It just means the power of God. It's the Greek word for the power of God. Alexander Venter was on here a few weeks talking about it in an incredible way. And if you were at our Holy Spirit conference a couple of weeks ago, you would have seen dynamis break out all over the room. It was a wild weekend. Do you know, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She's been ostracized and excluded as a result of that. And one day, as she's reaching through the crowd, just trying to touch Jesus, she manages to brush against the hem of his robe. And Jesus says, someone's touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. That power is an example of dynamis, God's power and strength and ability that can achieve what we couldn't accomplish or achieve on human power or strength or ability. 
Uh, we've got two kids. They're aged five and three, Aaron and Micah. And at Christmas time, we bought them these kiddie Kindle tablet device things. Please don't judge us. I can feel the judgment through the camera. Um, and we thought they might be educational. We thought that... Um, the kids might get familiar with technology by using these things. It had nothing at all to do with hoping for five minutes peace now and then. That's a lie. It had a little bit to do with getting five minutes peace now and then. Um, but the thing that we couldn't have anticipated was that our kids were going to be so totally consumed in these things. Like when they're on them, it's almost like we don't exist. I don't think they're not listening to us. I think they're so distracted and their senses are so consumed that they literally don't hear us. And it can be the most frustrating thing in the world when you've tried to give them an instruction like 45 times over and they're treating you as if you're invisible and that you don't exist. Of course, I always stay really calm in those moments. You can ask my wife about that. I think it can be a bit like that for God with us sometimes, can't it? We can get so easily distracted. Our minds are so often on other things. We're bombarded by media and entertainment and our jobs and our families and our to-do lists. And sometimes our senses just become overwhelmed and overloaded and it becomes really difficult to hear the wee small voice of God. In our passage this morning, I think what we're seeing is Barnabas and Saul being really intentional about removing distractions. They've carved out time to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit and to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 2 it said, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They knew that if they wanted to hear, they were going to need to lay down the busyness and the distractions of their lives and choose to be fully present with him. For them, that looked like worshipping and fasting together. That was their way of adopting a posture of listening, of kind of leaning in and turning their ear towards their father. And when they do that, they hear him speak and he gives them direction and purpose. He says, guys, this is what you're for. This is your mission. These are your marching orders. Go out there into the world and tell as many people as you can about Jesus. Make disciples of the nations. If ever there was a case of easier said than done. We don't know, but for Saul and Barnabas, you could imagine that feeling like an overwhelming ask. Like the sheer scale of it would have been mind-boggling and they would have been all too aware of the inevitable hostility that they were going to face. But fortunately, it seems that God never gives direction without dynamics. He always equips us with the resources and the power that we need to accomplish what he's asking of us. He doesn't expect us to achieve his kingdom goals in our own strength. And in fact, the opposite seems to be true. In 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, it says, For my power is made perfect in weakness. From our passage this morning, we read about how the guys don't rush off after they hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. They keep praying and fasting and waiting for God. And they have this moment where the others gather around and lay their hands on Saul and Barnabas. In verse 3 it says, So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. They wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and equip them. And they have this moment of commissioning or anointing and imparting. In Luke 24, 46 to 49, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. 
there's this thing of receiving instruction and direction. In this case, it's to be witnesses and waiting for the power of God to clothe and equip us. It's a bit like God is saying, hey, here's your job, but don't worry, I know you can't do it yet. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, though, and he has access to all of the resources of heaven and complete authority to give you everything you need. Just trust me and wait for him. In uh, Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the power that we receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon us is this. Courage, boldness, confidence, insight, ability, authority, faith, a fresh expectation of the supernatural. Saul and Barnabas were going to need all of these things to accomplish their mission. There is no way they could have accomplished it in their own power or strength. They had to rely on the Holy Spirit for dynamics. I wonder if some of us are afraid to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. I totally include myself in this. In case he asks us to do something that we think we can't do. What if he asks me to go and speak to that person and pray for them? What if he calls me away from the place that I know and the people that I love to live somewhere else? What if he asks me to give something up or give something away that I can't live without? What if he calls me into ministry or leadership? I can't do that, God. Maybe others of us have heard him speak already, but we've stopped short of stepping into what he's calling us to because we don't feel equipped. We can tie ourselves up in knots of fear and self-doubt, can't we? And you can ask anyone who's ever pastored me and they will absolutely confirm that I am the worst in the world for that. But the truth is, nothing that's achieved in and for God's kingdom happens as a result of human strength or ability or power. Anything that's achieved that's of any worth or value is always 100% down to God's ability and strength and power. And isn't that a massive relief? It's definitely a huge relief for me. I can't even pull off a beach barbecue to impress my fiancé. I think one of the key things from the passage that causes the gospel to spread like wildfire across the world and not fizzle out like my beach fire was the reliance of Barnabas and Saul on the others and the others on the Holy Spirit for their direction and their dynamics. And in the same way, as we spend time listening and waiting, I believe we'll receive direction and dynamics for the world-transforming things that he's calling us to that maybe feel impossible right now. The last thing I noticed from the passage, uh, and I hadn't really noticed it before, is how strategic and intentional the church is about carrying out its mission. One of the things that I've loved about being part of Catalyst Vineyard is how intentional we are at sharing our faith. We don't leave it to chance. And we've done a bunch of events and activities over the years that were intentionally designed to engage with our communities and to get to know them and to create opportunities to have a conversation. We've done things like litter picks and car washes, Easter egg hunts, Women and Men of the Year awards, prayer walks. We've handed out hot chocolate and cakes at community events and we've stood and offered prayer for healing in the streets of our neighbourhoods and we've shared our food. We're always up to something. Someone that used to come to this church called it getting up to holy mischief. I loved that. And the incredible thing is, we've seen people meeting with Jesus through that and there's people that are part of our church that first encountered us through some of those engagement events. 
Sadly, and I think this is probably one of the greatest modern injustices, uh, Pastor Scott from the North Site was once denied his idea of hiring a mechanical bull as a community engagement idea. I think that was a mistake, personally, and I think, uh, Scott, your idea was ahead of its time and that we should definitely hire a mechanical bull in future. As a church, we are really intentional about sharing our faith. We put time and effort and thought into it. God has given us our destination and uh, given us our direction, sorry, and our purpose out there into the world to share our faith. He's given us the power we need to achieve it. And he gives us creativity and our minds to work out the details. Saul and Barnabas, they don't react passively when they're given their direction and purpose and they don't choose where they're going to go and who they're going to make disciples at random. I think what we see in this passage is Saul and Barnabas being really uh, strategic when they plan where they're going to go and who they're going to go to first. The Holy Spirit's given them direction and purpose and dynamis, but he hasn't laid out, laid out a detailed plan for them. They need to engage their brains, and I, kind of, I imagine them having this moment where they're like, okay, we know what we've got to do, how are we going to do it? And, saying, and having this kind of dreaming and scheming and strategizing moment together. In verses 4 and 5, it says, The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salami, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. The places they go and the people they go to first reveal something about their strategy to get the gospel to as many people as they can as quickly as they can. So Barnabas is a Greek-speaking Jew from Cyprus. He's known and respected there. And they speak Greek there. What better place for the first missionary journey? They go to the population centres first, the places where most people lived. And they travel along established Roman trade and communication routes to make travel easier and safer and faster. And then we get to this bit where it said that they shared the news in the Jewish synagogues first. And it doesn't say it in the passage, but if the Jewish spiritual leaders wouldn't listen, they'd go to the pagan leaders. And it got me thinking, why on earth would they go to those places first? Surely they would be the most hostile places to take the message. But in fact, even that seems to make sense. Because they knew that if they could convince the spiritual leaders that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that they would help to make disciples of the rest of their people. And conversely, I guess, if they had gone straight to the people without speaking to their spiritual leaders, you could imagine that setting up real resentment and resistance to the message. They were strategic and intentional about choosing where and with whom to share their faith, and they took time to make a plan. I know that I'm called to share my faith and to make disciples, and it's one of the greatest joys we have, isn't it, as Christians, when someone makes a decision to follow Jesus, and we've played even the smallest part in their journey. But if I'm honest, I rarely sit down and think about how that's going to happen. I get the direction and purpose part. I sometimes get the dynamis part. I rarely spend enough time thinking about the destinations and disciples bit. Thinking about which relationships I could be investing in or where the opportunities are in my world to be sharing my faith. Somewhere within me there's this kind of passive thought that thinks that the sharing of my faith will just happen as I go about my life. And sometimes it does. But on reflection, I think it could be happening a whole lot more. Even within my limited experience of seeing people come to faith, it's happened most when there's been some intentionality, where someone's created an opportunity to reach people or someone's invested in a relationship with someone else. And that's a real challenge to me this morning, knowing my direction and my purpose, knowing that God equips me with everything I need to achieve it. What's my plan? 
Where am I making opportunities to share Jesus with my world? I can't just leave it for another day and hope that it'll just happen. It's too important. And so the questions I want to leave us with today are, where are we going to go and who are we going to share our faith with? How are we going to share it? What's our testimony? What account are we ready to give of the work of Jesus in our lives? Who could we be blessing or serving or inviting or praying for? And where is our mission field? Is it in our kids' schools? Is it in our workplaces? Is it within our own families even? I think one of the things that causes the gospel to spread like wildfire from Antioch is that Saul and Barnabas were prepared. They took time to make a plan and they didn't leave their destinations and disciples to chance. Amen.